Hi there, and welcome to another edition of DorkFest, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope this finds all of our loyal listeners enjoying a safe, happy, and healthy start to 2021. Just a quick reminder off the top, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our little rumpled raincoat of a podcast wherever you enjoy your pods, be it Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and make sure to connect with us also on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. My name is Dan Freemuth, and I'll be the lieutenant in charge of this particular investigation. And with me, as always, my fellow dorks. First up, a man who is never in need of a pencil. His wife says he's the second smartest guy, but claims there are 80 fellas tied for first. It's, of course, Jordan. Jordy, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just happy to be landing somewhere in the top 100 because I'm not typically used to being anywhere than, uh, near the top when it comes to Dorkfest, the podcast. I also just had a, a question for everybody. Anybody else feel like it was weird that the fugu didn't taste like uh, tuna fish? Yeah, I suspect that we will be discussing fugu sashimi in just a little bit. But no, I don't think anyone else outside of yourself and the dear lieutenant thought fugu was going to taste like tuna fish. Uh, next up, it's a guy who doesn't need to consider getting another car. He's got another car. His wife drives it. Nothing special, though, just for transportation. How you doing, Gabo? Uh, it's great to be here, and I hope you don't mind. Uh, I park my car around back uh, in the shade just because the sun, you know, reeks out with the paint. Well played, sir. Well played. And that's, uh, that's a reference from a Columbo episode we're not going to be talking about tonight. So well done there, Gabe. Uh, finally, it's a man whose ears pop in an elevator. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even like being this tall. And you can huff and puff on that rotten cigar, Josh, until next July, and you'll never prove otherwise. Dan, I implore you not to smoke. There's some that believe a good cigar goes with a good podcast, but I'm afraid I feel they clash. And also, Gabe's quote is definitely from an episode we're talking about tonight. So you're, uh, you're, you're off to your typical great start there, Dan. Way there it is. There it is. Yep. See, this is what I do, though. I, I'm just trying to lull you guys into a false sense of security because uh, this particular episode has a wrinkle whereby the moderator could actually win. Uh, in making Dorkfest podcast history. So I'm just trying to kind of catch you guys uh, off guard there a little bit. So thank you, Dorks, for all showing up. Our normal format, we're going to kind of set to the side here a little bit this time around. We'll get more to that coming up in just a little bit. Normally, this is the point in the podcast where we introduce the episode topic. You may have figured it out. We're going to be talking about the beloved TV series from the 70s and then later on Columbo. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of our episode coming up in just a little bit. But I want to start actually right off the top with our warm-up question. Because we're talking about a beloved TV series, it occurred to me that we've spoken a lot about movies. We've spoken a lot about music. We haven't spent a ton of time on TV shows outside of, of course, The Mandalorian and several Star Trek series. So it got me thinking, dorks our warm-up question this time around, which other TV shows have we not spent nearly enough time talking about on Dorkfest, the podcast? Josh, let's begin with you. I'm going to say The Simpsons. This is arguably the television show that I have seen the most episodes of in my life. Uh, you know, for probably six years straight, uh, at six and then 6.30 on Fox and syndication. Uh, we watched two episodes of The Simpsons at dinner, um, night after night after night growing up. There are so many great 
episodes. I, I jotted a few of my favorites down. Cape Fear, the one where the Simpsons have to go into witness protection uh, from Sideshow Bob, and he ends up doing the HMS Pinafore number. Um, Deep Space Homer, where Homer's an astronaut, you only move twice, the great James Bond parody there. The City of New York versus Homer Simpson, where it's five minutes of just Homer having to pee, which is unbelievably hilarious. Homer at the bat, uh, adult men taking softball too seriously. Uh, certainly nobody on this podcast has ever done that. Uh, the, tremendous episodes all throughout and also a, a show that like I watched a, a ton of probably saw every episode of its first 10 years and I'm quite certain I haven't seen a new episode in 15 years um so uh, as Dan likes to say plenty of meat on that bone I, I think we could spend a little time talking enjoyably about the Simpsons on Dorkfest the podcast that's a great pick because you're right, Josh. I, like you, I, I watched a lot of it early on and haven't seen any of the new stuff in a decade plus. When Disney Plus came out, though, I realized The Simpsons were on there and I did rewatch like the first season pretty early on into the Disney Plus subscription and really enjoyed it and also found myself knowing virtually every line of dialogue, even though those were episodes I had not seen in 10 to 15 years. So a great selection there. Jordy. What say you? What TV show have we not spent nearly enough time talking about on Dorkfest, the podcast? Uh, just to jump on the, the Simpsons bandwagon before I provide my answer, uh, Dan, like you, I also found myself returning to it on Disney+. Plus. Specifically around Halloween, I was rewatching some of the Treehouse of Horror episodes because they have them set aside in their own, in their own category. But Similarly, found myself remembering all of these lines, even though it had been so long since I'd seen it. Um, the, the dorks won't be too surprised by by my selection, and this might be more centered on the toys that I would play with so much growing up. Uh, but I'm going to say Transformers, um, and I'm going to leave it at that too, because there are a lot of different iterations of Transformers that we could look at. You obviously have the original cartoon, but then that was followed up by Beast Wars. I, I mean, I remember specifically really enjoying Beast Wars and feeling like that got a little bit shortchanged. Um, I feel like, you know, they had some more seasons left in that. Uh, and for, for whatever reason, it was cut short. Uh, but yeah, for, for my selection, I will go uh, with Transformers, Robots in Disguise. Jordy's answers, more than meets the eye. Don't be deceived. I thought, Jordy, when you said toys that you played with, I thought you were going to say Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. But Transformers is, is probably a probably a better pick than, than Power Rangers. So for my selection, I am going to say the TV series Firefly, which I know is one that Josh and Jordan have not seen, I think at all. Uh, but I think Gabe has, thankfully. This is, this is a series that like among dork or nerd circles is the one most commonly referenced as please please bring this series back. Like, how was this the show that only got one season? It's only 14 episodes long. That's it. Uh, the fan upheaval did generate a movie several years later, which was good, but not as good as the TV series. It's gritty. It's dirty. It's funny. It's action-packed. Nathan Fillion as Captain Malcolm Reynolds. Uh, you get Adam Baldwin as Jane Cobb, Alan Tudyk as the, the pilot Wash. It's all, you've got all these different unique characters. They're all very relatable. It's a funny, 
adventure show that's well-written, well-cast, well-acted, and only 14 episodes. Oh, too short. But even still, with only 14 episodes, I think it's one we should be delving more into here on DorkFest, the podcast. Gabe, let's, let's round it out with you. And, and you can at least agree on my, on my Firefly front, right? Oh, you're Goram right. I am a leaf on the wind, my friend. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Firefly is one of the classic gone before its time um, shows. And I, I've always wanted to revisit Serenity. I saw that. I generally knew what Firefly was, saw the movie first. Um, and then I got to be, you know, see more of the show and, and become enamored of that. And that's a, yeah, always, always worth talking more about Firefly. Um, I found myself trapped between a few different answers here. So uh, I'm going to go um, askew kind of all of that. And I think one show, and I don't know the prevalence actually that it holds among this group, which is maybe why I'm going to toss it into the, into the ring here. Um, I'm going to say we should be talking more about Saturday Night Live. Um, it's a show that, it, again, it's, it's been on forever. Um, some of our classic, especially early on, uh, a lot of Bill Murray, uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, plenty of uh, Bill Murray just comes to mind for Ghostbusters, but there's plenty of connections that go on there. Um, and it's just such an interesting, you know, pulse of, uh, of the culture. And it's also hilarious at its best and um, fascinatingly terrible at its worst. So if nothing else, we can always dissect the anatomy of a bad sketch. But uh, yeah, I'm going to say Saturday Night Live. Um, we got a lot of fun out of that over the overtime. And that would be, I think, a good, uh, that would be a fun one to chat over at some point. Although, Jordan, I want to throw a shout out to Beast Wars as well, because I grew up on that. That was, that was my Transformers, quote unquote. And um, uh, maybe never cooler. Early CGI television. Give it to me always. Fantastic stuff. All right. Great answers all. Josh with The Simpsons, Jordan with Transformers, and then its subsequent entities, myself with Firefly and Gabe. Saturday Night Live, really interesting selection there, and I think a very appropriate one. Bill Murray, of course, and plenty, and plenty of Dorkfest, the podcast tie-ins with SNL, because you've got Bill Murray with the, the Star Wars lounge singer skit, oh, yeah. and of course, our, our need for more cowbell, particularly in uh, <laughs> more cowbell or more crung bin, whichever it may be that coming from the SNL ranks as well. When you get to stuff, uh, you know, like extra projects from those, you know, we've got our office connection with our actual dork fest with, uh, Will Ferrell, uh, at least in part, we've got Mike Myers who goes on to do, uh, perhaps the, the best bond parody out there on Austin Powers. Yeah. Always fun, uh, fun things to come back to. Can't forget the, uh, Sean Connery impersonations. As oh, well. of course. My goodness. Take swords for 400. That's S words. I'm glad you chose that one because I think all <laughs> the other ones are probably not appropriate for our family friendly program here. Just about every other one. Yeah. Right. Right. Good, good pick there, Jordy. So great yep. answers all and, uh, and some shows that maybe will appear in future Dorkfest podcast, but not on this one, at least not any longer, because now we're going to set our sights on one specific TV show, referenced it in the introductions of the Dorks. We are going to be talking about Columbo. Now, this is a series that ran mostly in the 70s. It had two pilot episodes in 1968 and 1971, then officially began airing in episodic season format on NBC from 1971 to 1978. And it was part of the rotating programs on NBC mystery movies. Columbo did later reappear on ABC from 1989 to 2003. Those latter episodes are nice for us Columbo junkies 
movies, but they're not anywhere near as good as the original run. And we're going to be focusing our efforts on that original 1970s Columbo. This is a series that was created by Richard Levinson and William Link, and it popularized the inverted detective story format, whereby we as the audience see the crime committed. So it's it's not a whodunit story, but rather a matter of how the perpetrator, who is known to us as the audience, will be caught and exposed by Columbo. Of course, Columbo, the star of the show, what was so interesting about this series and so revolutionary was that the star character oftentimes doesn't appear until 10 to 15 minutes into the episode, thereby making the guest stars, the murderers, the crimes themselves. It was really important that those be engaging to the audience if your star wasn't going to show up until later on in the episode. Of course, as the series went along, the character of Columbo was well-established through his trademarks and tropes, including but not limited to his rumpled raincoat, his often disheveled and unassuming appearance, his cigar, the Peugeot car, the wife, quote unquote. There's some mystery there as to whether she does or does not in fact exist. That's one of the tropes. Of course, his dog, the singing of this old man and his trademark phrase, just one more thing. Now, a trademark of the series, in addition to those individual tropes as it relates to the character of Columbo, was pitting the unassuming and blue-collar Columbo against the city of Los Angeles's wealthy and elite. This dynamic was established almost from the very beginning, and it created a really interesting setting for Columbo to sort of catch the perpetrators off guard. They often took him for granted and underestimated him because of his appearance and the way he portrayed himself. But in the end, Columbo always was able to get his man or woman in some cases. Now, the character of Columbo, uh, well-renowned in TV lore, was ranked number seven on TV Guide's 50 Greatest TV Characters of All Time. That came out in 1999. Peter Falk, for his efforts on the television show Columbo, won four Emmy Awards for his portrayal of the character. The show was included in TV Guide's 60 Greatest Dramas of All Time. That released in 2013, and it ranked 33rd on the list of its 60 best series. Also in 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked it 57th on its 101 best written TV series. So, long story short, this is a, this is a television show that most of us here on Dorkfest, the podcast, really love, but it was also one very well-renowned, very highly regarded, and extremely popular in its heyday in the 1970s. Now, as great as this show is and was, I mentioned that it's popular amongst most of our Dorkfest, the podcast contingent, because it's a relatively new endeavor for one officer within the DFPD. That's Dorkfest Police Department, by the way. Which brings us to our somewhat unconventional format for these particular proceedings. Now, Josh, Jordan, and myself were raised on Columbo. It's not an exaggeration at all to say I've been watching Columbo episodes for the past 25 years with the J-Boys not far behind. While Gabe had never seen a single episode until we forced him to do so as part of this exercise, Josh, Jordan, and I each selected an episode of Columbo for Gabe to watch. These episodes were chosen by us as what we thought as seminal offerings of the series, but they also had to incorporate cast or crew found within the Dorkfest expanded universe. In other words, the carrot to make sure that Gabe actually watched our chosen episodes of Columbo. Now, Gabe doesn't know which of us selected each episode, but he's now seen each of the three, and we all, Josh, Jordan, and myself, have recently rewatched them as well. Not that we necessarily needed to, but it's always fun to go back to. 
We'll discuss each episode as part of our one, two, and three-point questions, but, and this is where the change happens here on today's show, points won't be awarded until the very end of the show. And the winner this time around is simple. Whichever dork picked the episode of Columbo that Gabe enjoyed the most, well, that dork is the winner. So without any further ado, the stage is set. Let's dive right into it. Our one-point question, or topic number one, will be the first episode of Columbo that we discuss. And the episode is Murder by the Book. Now, this was a season one, episode one, original air date of September the 15th of 1971. This was after the two pilots. So this is the first sort of official episode of Columbo. Directed by Steven Spielberg, starring, of course, Peter Falk as Columbo, but the main guest star is Jack Cassidy, his first of three appearances as a Columbo killer. He is Ken Franklin, one half of a very popular and successful mystery writing team. The general gist of the episode is that Franklin's partner, Jim Ferris, wants to break off and do some serious writing, thus leaving Franklin basically leaving him in the lurch. Franklin is not the writer. He's the PR, the promo guy on the team. And so with Ferris breaking free, that's going to leave Franklin and his lavish lifestyle kind of hanging out there. So what does Franklin do? Takes matters into his own hands and he murders his partner. Columbo has to come on the scene and try and solve the case. So Gabe, you have seen Murder by the Book. We're going to begin each of these topics with your sort of initial first impressions. So what are your thoughts on Murder by the Book? This is, um, as the, the official pilot, as you say, for Columbo, is just a hugely efficient and well-made episode. Um, there are people at the top of their craft, or at least a peak of their craft, all involved in this. Um, of note, too, involved in uh, the production of this episode is the writer Stephen Bochco of uh, pretty much any television made in the 70s fame. Seriously, name it. He, he was probably involved in some fashion. If it wasn't him, it was Norman Lear. And it's uh, it, it's an immediate, it grabs you immediately. Um, I, one of you guys I saw noted uh, in our document here um, that opening shot um, that immediately sets the tone. Um, it, all you see is a, it's a car traveling and the camera pulls back out. You realize you're looking through a high rise apartment window and all you're hearing is that old-fashioned clacking of typewriter keys. And it is a very procedural sort of calculating, unfolding opening couple of minutes um, with a good little, even quick red herring of uh, what you think is gonna be the murder and then catches you off guard and, and they continue. Um, tells you right from the outset, what you're watching is a character piece effectively. And that's the best thing that I've seen about the Columbo episodes that I've watched so far, which while we are talking about these three, I have to tell y'all, uh, I've been inspired to watch beyond um, our, our noted three. But yeah, it's, it's a delightful first installment for, for Columbo. I think everything that marks the series has a seed here. Um, granted, I've not seen, you know, there's a bunch of episodes, there's dozens, I have not seen nearly all of them, but there's a, a good spread in what I've seen. And there's a lot of, Columbo basically arrives fully formed as, as a show and a series idea. Um, Jack Cassidy, I think, is a, is a wonderful, great first example of the kind of murderer that, yeah, will, will come to define the nefarious goings-on in, in the series. And uh, he, in particular, is just so smarmy, smarmily charming is perhaps the word I'm looking for. He, he's a great first guy because he's, like, from frame one, uh, Columbo even has, a, even has a bit. He tells him at the end, um, I, I sort of knew it right from the start. 
he tells him um, at the, you know, I, it, it wasn't much. It was a lot of little things. And that's basically Columbo's whole character. Yeah, it was nothing definite. It was a lot of little things. And, and he comes into every episode, it seems, knowing that's going to be the case. And the way he zooms in on these guys and the way he pesters Jack Cassidy in particular, I think, is, is really fun in the way that Columbo just sort of shows up. And it's perfectly natural for him to be at any one given point in time, um, whether it's convenient or not. It's probably not, but, you know. Um, and, and yeah, the, the sort of verbal cat and mouse, the the duel that goes on where there's, you know, a planted story, a fabrication of what could have gone on. In this case, um, his partner is writing about the mob. So he's saying, you know, this is obviously a gangland hit. You know, the way he's able to embellish the story and, and he's so confident um, in his own prowess that, yeah, the and this is something too, Dan, that you call out in the show notes, the, the sort of class warfare and miniature that's going on here between... Um, yeah, this seemingly bumbling, otherwise kind of disheveled blue-collar beat cop, as he's even referred to by Jack Cassidy at one point, versus, yeah, somebody higher. I've, he's got a cabin in San Diego. It was built by a series of high-selling you know, high books. He's got women there every night. He's got, you know, parties. He, you know, obviously ends up needing the insurance money that this whole scheme ends up being about. Um, yeah, and, and the way they dance around that, and there is ultimately sort of a grudging respect for Columbo. Uh, and of course, the way in which the final, a final clue or some piece makes it all come together. And you've got that great scene at the end, back where it all started, the scene of the crime. Well, a scene of the crime where, you know, it all comes together. It was a lot of little things. Um, and I, I really especially like the little twist here at the end, too, wherein this idea that, yes, his partner did write down this, this story idea that ends up being the plan by which he killed his partner, that that was actually Jack Cassidy's idea. Um, the only good one I ever had. And then, of course, you know, he just sort of calmly accepts his fate and walks off because the episode's over and it's the 70s and we're on to the next one. Um, in short, I've gone on a lot about this, but um, it, it is already, I just want to say, been such a pleasure to jump into this Columbo world. You, just to say you guys have not to drag nor forced me. Um, this is just delightful. Gabe, when you were talking about like kind of the the class warfare, I, I like I like that way of of, of stating it, though it, it might be a bit heavy handed. But I do think that it gets to that general idea that you know you have sort of the bumbling detective versus the 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 more elite, the person who thinks that they know what they're doing. And what I think is interesting about how this episode goes about it is that. Franklin also uses the detective of the stories, Mrs. Melville, as kind of the proxy for that. You know, he says early on about how, like, well, Mrs. Melville would have jumped to this conclusion by now. She would have been this many steps ahead of you. And I just thought that was a really interesting way how this episode kind of went about setting up that that dichotomy between Columbo and between the killer and giving us this initial sense that, you know, Columbo's, you know, bumbling he might not know what he's doing or we and because this is still you know early on this is as dan pointed out the first in the episode run and the third episode that people will have seen so you get a general sense of how the stories go but maybe not a firm sense of how they go so i just thought like the mrs melville inclusion was an interesting sort of proxy for for bringing in that idea with this specific episode that's something i like a lot too jordan is is this idea that they sort of use this as a framing device like a wink wink nudge nudge this is an agatha christie story only it's not you know, I mean, they're, they're clearly trying to cast themselves in that same mold of, a, of an Hercule Poirot or a Sherlock Holmes in some way. But as Dan pointed out, yeah, it's not a whodunit. The audience, and that, that's the fun catch. Well, there's two fun catches about Columbo as a show. And the first fun one is, yeah, you know 
pretty much everything about how it's done. You're shown even sometimes step by step um, how the murder is performed and presumably how this person gets, it feels they're going to get away with it. Um, and the, then to see the clues get pieced together is um, a really artful piece of storytelling uh, each and every time. Um, and of course, the second delightful part of Columbo is Peter Falk. Um, and the show, of course, lives and dies by whether or not you, you buy into it. But I don't know how you couldn't. Um, Dan, you mentioned he won four Emmys for this role. And, and boy, I hope that was enough. Um, I could spend forever watching just every little quirk and stuff that he, he pours into this character. Um, Peter Falk knows exactly what he's doing, even three episodes in. He has this character in his head. He is a, he is a flesh and blood person. Um, and that leads me to believe in a way that Columbo does too. He's a, just as a quick character summation from, from the neophyte here. Um, to me, Columbo looks like a, he, he's a man who knows exactly who he is and knows exactly how to play what he's got. Um, he doesn't have to be anything more. He doesn't have to, he levels as such an equal with these scumbags that he talks to and he's so charming with them and he talks to the, and you know, he's deferential and he accepts their, you know, very thinly veiled criticisms and barbs and all that kind of stuff. He rarely loses his cool. I mean, he is just a delight because ultimately he knows he's got such a conscience and he trusts so much in that they are wrong and he, they will make a mistake and he'll catch a minute. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of performance. Yeah, Gabe, and in this episode, Columbo slow plays Franklin just beautifully. I mean, just never even slightly admitting in as much as all of his questions make it perfectly obvious that he suspects Franklin, he will never admit it, even when asked directly. And then like, when... Oh, no, Cabe, you talked about like Columbo showing up in the oddest places. I love when he shows up in the cabin at the end. He's just knocking on the window. <laughs> Morning. <laughs> <laughs> Why else would I be here but to see if an LA beat cop could rent a ca- fancy cabin in San Diego? Obviously, that's why I'm here. Um, he, he slow plays Franklin beautifully in this episode. He could pin him down at that last moment. But, but he doesn't, he lets him go. He, you know, he just sort of lets him know, like, I've got the upper hand, I'll get to you eventually, but now I'll walk out the door and leave you the sweat of it. Because he's still missing something at that point. He's missing that last, uh, the note that, um, that the One bit of hot evidence. Well, yeah. Nailed <laughs> well, and I think that scene at the cabin is so good because it's an excellent example of Columbo doesn't, offer up anything more than he absolutely has to. He, he's got all the, all the cards in his hand and he will only show you when absolutely forced to. So that, that's a situation where, right, like he doesn't admit right away that he phoned the night before because it's not to his benefit yet. He wants to kind of probe and do some questioning here. And he figures out, okay, well, this guy, Franklin, he tells me this, that, and the other. And then only at the very end, is it, you know, what kind of nightlife? Oh, none. Just, you know, just crickets and and birds and and that's it. Oh, well, it's funny you say that because I I tried to give you the heads up last night that I was, you know, coming, but you know, I called and, and nobody answered. And, and that's, you know, Franklin then starts to feel like, Oh boy, like, all right, before this guy's kind of been a pest. And now I'm really starting to feel like he may, he may really be on to me, uh, you know, with something, but then he, then he goes for the hard evidence. And then we see 
that's when he starts to kind of push a little bit. You know, Columbo is very unassuming and and he just kind of, it seems like he goes with the flow at times until there's that moment where the rubber's meeting the road and that's when he's meeting with Joanna Ferris. And, you know, he very point blank says, this man killed your husband. Like, I, I don't know what else to tell you here, but like this, oh, he says, this man took your husband's life and he lays it out plain and simple. Like I, I need a piece of evidence and you can help me here. And I don't know why you're defending this Franklin guy, because I hate to tell you lady, but he took your husband's life and Columbo doesn't get that very blunt often. And I think that's a real stroke of genius in the show because you, if you go to that card all the time, it becomes a trope and it becomes very predictable. And so when we do see that side of Columbo, it's like, whoa, okay, now, now we're, we're into that final crescendo of the episode. Things are, are really going to start to come to here, together here pretty quick. And we can tell this guy is, is close, but no cigar, no pun intended there. Um, you know, he, he's close, he needs help, and he knows he's got his guy, but he's not quite there yet. This show is really deliberately crafted, at least from what I've seen so far. Um, and, and, you know, you'd expect that everything, <laughs> anything that gets professionally made should be, but everything means something. I mean, the show pays such good attention to details and mood. I'm, I'm thinking especially in the beginning of this. We referenced um, the opening shot that really sort of sets the tone. And you, after all this camera work and the, and the typewriter, you pull back, you see a writer in the office. And uh, Jack Cassidy comes up to kill um, the partner puts the gun in his face and the guy laughs. Uh, and from there on out, you know, because the guy calls his bluff, as it were, you know, that's the red herring. He doesn't, um, he's not actually going to kill him. They laugh it off as a practical joke. And even though the gun may not be loaded, everything else from that moment on is. Um, I mean, you know that this guy is going to be a victim. You know what you're sort of signed up for here. And then you start trying to suss out immediately, all right, how's he going to do it? Um, and it makes every shot more meaningful. I mean, it, it, to Spielberg's credit, I mean, this is 1971. This is four or five years before he's going to start doing Jaws. Um, and his talents for building suspense and for, for suspicion in general are really on full display. He, uh, from there, they refer, you know, he references, I'm going to kidnap you for the weekend, you know, taking you to the, to the cabin. They say, we'll go fishing. And then it's like, well, that's maybe not a good idea to go fishing with a guy who you just fought with and who just pointed an unloaded gun in your face. Maybe don't do that, but anything becomes possible. He, he says, um, you know, one of the things he calls him out for is you're not wearing gloves. Later on, his driving gloves, when they get to his cabin, stay on his hands. Yeah, a lot of little things, you know, even to the point of, you know, it's his new cabin. It was just finished six months ago. So no, there's nothing weird about having a plastic wrapped couch that you're going to sit on while I stand across from, you know, across the room from you. By the time it happens, all the pieces are locked in so perfectly. It's a really, really well-crafted, like opening 15 minutes um, or even, you know, like five or 10 because Columbo doesn't show up until a good amount into that first episode when everything is, is set. And it's, as you say, Dan, it's a very unassuming first entrance too. He's very human. He's very humble. Um, and he goes right to the victim, doesn't interrogate her, doesn't surround her with the chaos that precedes his meeting her. He just talks to her like a human. It's phenomenally crafted. And he's really contrasted to the other cops at For that sure. scene because they had just been berating her. You know, a scene there that, that really doesn't age well. Um, but just kind of the character development there. And that is then, you know, extended on with one of my favorite scenes in this episode. Episode, which is the omelet scene 
right? This, you know, this scene where Columbo's getting to know the, you know, who, who will become the, the widow, the, the victim's wife. Um, and, you know, he's making her an omelet, even though she keeps saying she doesn't want the omelet. And that gives us a sense of, like, who Columbo is, right? Like, he's going to... He's gonna he's gonna keep being the past. He's gonna keep asking the questions, but but he's also gonna do so in a way um, that will either purposely make you comfortable or uncomfortable. Um, that omelet scene is just one that I that I really really enjoy. I just want to take a little umbrage with something you said there, Jordy, because I think that scene is a really good example again of Columbo not not showing his cards until he has to. He, I, I think, to Gabe's point, he's very honest, right? He shows up at, at the water fountain at the office, right? And the water fountain doesn't work, and then you want the coffee, and then you lose your dime, and the coffee's lousy. And so, you know, let, let me take you home. And so now he's, it, it's classic good cop, bad cop. You mentioned, Jordan, the, the cops that were berating her, and so Columbo now plays good cop. And yes, he's a little pushy with the omelet, but even Columbo says, look, take one bite. If you don't like it, you throw it away. That's that. But he waits for Joanna to bring up the murder before he ever starts asking any questions. And that's a very tactful move by him. And that's part of that unassuming nature. I'm just going to slow play this. And then when she brings it up, then I can start probing a little bit more because now she's in the mindset of either wanting to talk about it or needing to talk about it. And that's one of his true gifts with, and, and that would be absent the, the perpetrator. The perpetrator, yes, he's he's going to be a pest and he's going to pester and he's going right after them probably from the very beginning. But to these other characters, he's going to slow play it and wait for them to kind of bring it up. I thought that was a good example of the kindness that I think Columbo can display. I think he, he sometimes come a, comes across as this badgering nudge and an annoyance and, and a pain in the you-know-what, but I, I think there is kindness there. It's you know, that annoyance and that badgering comes into play because he's a professional. At the end of the day, he is paid to, to get his perpetrator, and he will stop at nothing to be able to do that. There's genuine kindness with Joanna Ferris, and then there's the, the kill him with kindness that he uses towards Ken Franklin. And the, the, the really, frankly, dumb move by Franklin is that like Columbo doesn't even have to try to slow play it. Like Ken Franklin just cannot wait to give all these answers and all these explanations. And I remember having a conversation with Dan and Jordan where like 90% of the questions Columbo asks the, the murderers in all these shows, they would be so much better off if they just said, I don't know. And they always try to come up with an explanation. And, you know, sometimes they play it off as like, hey, you know, maybe this could be it. You know, who knows? But Franklin is just like, no, I'll tell you exactly what the reason is. And watching it now, you're like, gee, buddy, it's kind of obvious that you've spent a little too much time thinking about the ins and outs of everything that's gone on in the last 12 hours or whatever, whatever it's been. Um, the other thing that stands out to me um, about Franklin, and it's the first thing that Gabe uh, mentioned, is just what an ass he is. I mean, you use the words smarmy, arrogant, smug, and dismissive were the three adjectives that I wrote down, but smarmy definitely applies to the way he just shamelessly flirts 
with anybody and everybody. I mean, you, he, I think he's even flirting with Joanna Ferris. Can you get me a drink, love? Um, I mean, he is an absolute awful human being. <laughs> I mean, for, for a myriad of reasons, but just the way that he interacts with, with all the, the women in this episode is, is, is deplorable. I'm not sure that I ever picked up on it in previous viewings, but I noticed it this time around. The scene when he's giving the interview, that is so cringeworthy. My favorite part is at the end, when he lets the lady out, she's going to follow up for a more detailed interview later Even on. Even in more depth. Yeah, that's, that's super creepy, by the way. He closes the door <laughs> because he's forgotten about the, the photographer, the lady. Oh, oh, oh sorry. sorry yeah, here you go. Let me open the door again because you're so irrelevant to my existence. I completely forgot you were even there, even though I know your name and referenced you earlier in the scene not three minutes ago. And it's another stupid slip up by Franklin because not 12 hours earlier, a reporter calls him while Columbo is there and asking for an interview. He's like, what, are you kidding? An interview now? You know, oh, the, the, a gentleman of the press. Like, but when it's a lady of the press, uh, then, you know, maybe, maybe I could be persuaded, you know, be, because you were so nice to us during our, our lean years. You're 100% right. I mean, all this is, is, this is spot on analysis, Josh. Listen up, folks. This is why he's king, king of Dorkfest. But it is, it's so true. The, I mean, the reason they have to keep talking, the reason this guy has to keep talking, and, and maybe this applies even in, in somewhat subtler dimensions to some other murderers we may mention on this podcast tonight, um, but he has to prove how smart he is. I mean, that's part of his part of his charm, part of his ego, and that's that's the whole part of the shtick, is to prove that he is the smartest and most charming guy in the room. I am a famous writer. Have I told you this? Can I tell you how much smarter I am than you? Get us a drink, love. Let me, I'll, I'll, I had the whole thing figured out in the first act. Yeah, that, yeah, he keeps bringing up Mrs. Melville as though, and, and this, it is sort of an interesting, like, sort of even subtextual commentary on this episode, like, you know, the writer doesn't know diddly squat. This is real. This is going to be real life detective work, son. Like, you know, some of the basics here, but Mrs. Melville doesn't exist. You've got Lieutenant Columbo. And, and there is that little, uh, I, I do sort of enjoy that. Uh, it's not exactly a tip of the cap, more of a, what, a tap of the cigar to the Mrs. Melville portrait at the end of the episode from Columbo, just as, you know, he's reading the story and just, you know, and that's another great thing just while I'm still waxing poetic about Columbo is he does seem to genuinely enjoy his job. Like he, you know, he, he goes through, he enjoys reading the book. He certainly enjoys bringing folks to justice, but you know, he also enjoys some views along the way. Boy, look at the, look at this. Uh, although, you know, I'm certain he couldn't afford the real estate around there. They're mostly rental cabins. Again, just a not so subtle jab at his status in life. And that's the, that's, uh, that is really something I enjoy about the show. You've got all these people punching down and, you know, Columbo's there to, to be a foil and he gets them every time. Well, and, you know, Gabe, when you were talking about Columbo seeming to genuinely enjoy his job, it makes me think of, you know, he he enjoys puzzles. He likes sure, yeah. piecing together the puzzles. And I think that that's, you know, really the part of the job that he enjoys and the part of the job that, frankly, he's really good at. Um, and I think, I think that's something that's relatable and very seemingly authentic. Uh, it, it, 
also, Gabe, when you were talking earlier about, you know, the character of Franklin and how this defining character trait of him was, you know, that he he needed to prove to everybody and anyone that he was the smartest, the most charming person in the room, when in reality, he really, really wasn't. We've already talked about some of the mistakes that he made in front of Columbo, but, um, you know, we haven't talked so much about, um, as someone titled in our outline, the rise and fall of Lily Lasanka, which is, you know, he just... So he, you know, he clearly realizes that for his initial ploy to be able to continue to work because Lysanka is trying to extort him, he need, you know, needs to get rid of her, but he just commences to do so in such a sloppy way. Um, you have the, the, the cork from the champagne bottle left aside. And then for me, like the dumbest thing is he withdraws the $15,000 that he's going to pay her and then deposits this right back the very next day. You know, wait a week or like like do something else with it but don't just redeposit it the day after like that that very clearly is going to be throwing up some red flags when you already know that this pest colombo is following you but see he's already gotten away with it i think that's his psychology right i mean at that point the second murder doesn't matter he's just you know it doesn't matter that he's covering for the first he's already gotten away with that it's just that this person he knows knows nobody else does you know colombo's never going to figure it out but it is, as Columbo tells him, you know, the first murder, that was your partner. The second murder, that sloppy one, that was you. Um, that was your work. And that's actually what surprised me. That was something I didn't know going into the show. I knew that, you know, uh, I knew going in that there was, you saw the murder and that the drama was seeing the solution piece together. I didn't realize that there is as, pretty much every time a secondary murder um, that follows along and, and sort of gives some further clues but that always gives some, I think, interesting insight to the to our murderers row um, in the in these shows. And yeah, poor Lily Lasanga um, didn't play her cards great either. But boy, was not dealt a great hand in the first place. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's really pretty brutal too. I feel like the second one is all just as bad, or if not worse, than the first um, in these shows. And and yeah, the uh, it it's just unnecessary. But the, again, it is that ego, that hubris, that brings these folks down. They can get away with anything, so they try. Yeah, I, I think that hubris is exactly what makes the character dynamic here so good. And that's, I, I particularly enjoy the end of the episode, the, the gotcha moment when Columbo is laying it all out to Franklin. I, I've got you and, and you know, that that's the end of it here. I'm just kind of outlining now how I've got you. But because he knows and because he knows the kind of guy that Ken Franklin is, now he's not pulling any punches. Now it's not kill him with kindness. It's, you know, oh, are, are you awarding are you awarding medals? Yes, for the first one, which I know was your partner's, not for the second one. That one was sloppy. That was yours. And he's, I mean, just blatantly chastising him. You know, I know you were the, the promotional part of the team. I know you didn't write. I know you don't have any good ideas. And I'm going to bruise the thing that matters the most to you. And that's your tremendous ego. Oh, and by the way, I'm sending you off to jail as well. So, um, so really great discussion there, everybody. Um, I want to open it up. Just any final thoughts about murder by the book. We've got a couple of other episodes to get to. Um, so I want to make sure that we give those their due as well. Any final thoughts about murder by the book before we advance to episode number two, speak now or forever hold your peace. I got to get me a pair of driving gloves. They are pretty essential in this episode. And, and yes, I, I suspect that's a trend that, Josh, you, you could bring back into, into fashion. I just want to reiterate my astonishment as to the number of 
excellent dorky connections this show has to all of the other ties that bind us here. Um, to have the pilot directed by Steven Spielberg should uh, should give our audience uh, a, an idea of the kind of dorky ties to come. I'm glad you mentioned Spielberg because there was one, that my, my actual last thing that, that I need to say is when Franklin is having dinner with Lily and they do the toast, you yeah. know, they follow the champagne glasses across is a shot straight out of Raiders of the Lost Ark yes, when Karen Allen is in the drinking contest at the very beginning. I put those shots together what, you know, like five years ago watching this episode and finally making the connection that it was Spiel, that Spielberg who directed both and like, wow, like that's the same camera movie, little, you know, nerdy thing. Oh, but it's awesome. And you're hundred percent right. Spielberg is a master of action, I think within the frame and also in Spielberg's a master. And we'll talk about this later on of doing like this short, long take. He doesn't do these five minute unbroken shots, but he is a master at doing these like 60 to 90 second full on shots that include within them, like a dozen different close ups and long shots and wides and all that kind of stuff. Just to say, that's the kind of talent you're bringing to Columbo. And let's move on to the second one because there is more to come. There is more to come. That's where we're going to go right now. So obviously, Steven Spielberg was the main Dorkfest expanded universe connection to Murder by the Book for the one of myself, Josh, and Jordan who selected that episode. The second episode that we're going to get to, instead of a behind-the-scenes connection, we're going with an on-camera Dorkfest connection. We are going to season two, episode six. It aired initially on February the 11th of 1973. The episode is entitled A Stitch in Crime and of course stars as the big baddie Leonard Nimoy as Dr. Barry Mayfield, the first of three appearances by USS Enterprise, original Enterprise, main bridge crew members, William Shatner and Walter Koenig would later appear actually in the same episode, Fade Into Murder. We're not talking about that one, though. We're talking about Barry Mayfield as played by Leonard Nimoy and as played just exquisitely by Leonard Nimoy. The gist of this particular episode is that Nimoy is part of a research tandem with the lovable Dr. Heidemann. They're, they're putting out some research that's going to make them a whole bunch of money, but there's competition to release this information. And Dr. Mayfield is the sort of ambitious, go get him, let's release it, let's take the credit. We don't want anybody else to take the credit. And Dr. Heidemann is a little more cautious. He wants to do more tests, understanding that somebody else may beat them to the punch, but he would rather be right and not first. While that's going on, Dr. Heidemann has to have a heart operation and... Dr. Mayfield, being the surgeon in charge of Dr. Heidemann, has basically devised a scheme to ensure that Heidemann doesn't make it. Only Nurse Sharon Martin discovers what Dr. Mayfield has done before the plan is fully able to take place. So with that, Dr. Mayfield has to off Nurse Sharon Martin, all while creating a really convoluted a plot as to who may have actually killed her. And, oh, by the way, he still, it seems, harbors intentions of knocking off Dr. Heidemann as well. So didn't actually come to play, but could have been, I believe, the only triple homicide in Colombo history, as we did with Murder by the Book. Let's begin with Gabe, your initial first impressions after watching A Stitch in Crime. Um, first things first, also just to note, notable Columbo things. Is this the only episode in which the intended target is not killed? 
because there are, there's a body count to this episode, but the initial guy he tries to murder does not die. I'm not going to answer that because if I did, it might spoil <laughs> subsequent episodes and twists that you might encounter. Fair enough. Good point. Moving on. Um, yeah, all points first to Leonard Nimoy, who is just kind of terrifying in this episode, just an appalling human being, which, you know, I suppose given that he was Vulcan, he's good at choosing, you know, playing guys that are not human still. Um, it's always striking to see Leonard Nimoy without the ears, not in the uniform, um, remembering that he is an actual actor capable of, of various things because he's quite good at his job. Um, and he is. It's on full display here. He gets to be really, really sinister um, as Barry Mayfield. This, this might be, I mean, of the three, this guy I think is my favorite murderer um, of the three episodes that we saw here. I'll tell you, I'll give you that one for free because this guy is just evil. When he, I mean, he's got a great, terrific, and seemingly painful sort of long con plan to carry out his first murder with a case of some dissolving sutures, which it occurred to me, I started thinking about this, while it sounds brilliant to us, would it be kind of simple to figure out on the other side, like, well, obviously, you know, if he used the wrong sutures, that shouldn't have been a mistake, but in this day and age, wouldn't that, couldn't he have easily shifted blame on the nurse that he ends up killing anyway? I mean, just sad to say, I mean, this guy is truly a calculatedly evil person, because then he does go after, yeah, the nurse who notices that there is something awry with how he conducted the surgery using dissolving sutures on a heart valve instead of standard ones. And then, of course, to try and double, triple down on his given story to Columbo, effectively, he then goes after an old boyfriend of hers um, who ends up buying it after what is the gentlest fall down the stairs I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, poor Harry. And, you know, he, again, tr just truly an innocent that this guy is, is out to destroy anybody that's getting in the way of his research, which makes me think that his research is either really good, in which case just release it, dude, and it'll speak for itself, or super poor, in which case just go back to the drawing board with Dr. Heidemann and, and you know, listen to the man. Um, yeah, the, Nimoy clearly will stop at nothing. He's incredibly cocky. He's really smart um, and super cool under pressure. Uh, to the Columbo even mentions that, I think, in the, in the climax of this one. Um, that, yeah, I mean, you're a surgeon here. You're supposed to keep calm under pressure. And, you know, boy, just, it, and he, did, he really doesn't crack. There's sort of only one moment when you see, I think, true and visible relief on Nimoy's, on Barry Mayfield's face um, at the end of the episode after he pulls a, a really neat sort of switcheroo um, with a key piece of evidence um, on Columbo initially to, to the point where you think this might be the first guy that actually gets away with it. But of course, then Columbo comes back through the door and, ah, you know, you, know, you, you were so close. You almost had. So, okay, I want to jump in there real quick because there's an important question that I want to ask about that scene in particular. Columbo essentially gives his concession speech. You're finally rid of me. You, know, you, you beat me. I can't prove it. I'm finally out of your hair. And he walk, leaves the gown behind and walks out the door. And then Mayfield does his, um, you know, his stretch and sigh of relief. And that's when Columbo comes back in, you know, you really had me going. Do you think that Columbo knew the suture was in the pocket when he leaves the office? Or do you think he closes the door and then it clicks? And that's when he bursts back in with all this energy, because I genuinely can't 
you know, settle on which one it is. It seems like a giant risk to leave and come back, but it also seems, you know, what, what would have happened in those two seconds to make him realize it. So I'm curious to get your guys' opinion on that. That's a terrific question, Josh, because um, I wondered the same thing as it was, as it was playing, um, because it is, it's so fast. And my typical read on Colombo is he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, if there's a bit of performance involved, he's just, that's just him enjoying his job and maybe giving a little bit back from what he's gotten over the course of the episode from, you know, his, his verbal fencing matches with the murderer. But yeah, in this one, part of me almost, part of me wants to, I feel like I'm split 60, 40, maybe 70, 30 with the lesser part being um, he figured it out on the way out the door that if he was so certain and if he's remembering, if he's piecing together everything that happened, maybe it clicks when he is yeah, six paces removed from Mayfield's door, giving Mayfield just enough time to breathe that huge sigh of relief. Um, and he speeds back in before he's like, well, if it's anywhere, it has to be, you know, nobody will search but me. And if it's anywhere, and I'm certain this guy's guilty, it's on my coat. I have to get to it first. But knowing how much, because he, he gets angry with Mayfield at one point. That doesn't happen a lot. Um, I think part of me thinks that, yeah, Colombo may have wanted to stick it back a little bit, give a little better performance. I mean, see this gown? I'm even going to throw it in frustration onto your couch just so you really think you're in the clear here, pal. And then I'm going to wait about, oh, two beats, and then I'm going to turn right back around and, and tell you how. Because and, and, he, he reenters with such a plum, with such flourish, that you have to think that – and that's what also maybe makes me think that it's that a triumphant realization. Like, it's got to be this. I can't be wrong about this. This guy's a scumbag. You know, I, I do think he had it figured out, but it's a great question. Yeah, Josh, I, I know you ran this question by me earlier, and, and after – after you had asked it, I, I found myself going back and forth. You know, Columbo reads people so well throughout all of these episodes. And that makes me think that maybe he did know. And as Gabe had pointed out, wanted to just needle him, pun maybe slightly intended, a little bit further. Because he, he would know with how arrogant Barry Mayfield is that he wouldn't go right to the gown, that he would assume, okay, it's been taken care of, and he would do exactly what he did. So I think because Columbo reads people so well, he, he would feel maybe comfortable playing that risk. That said, on the flip side of it, and I think, you know, similar to Gabe, I, I think I, I'm torn, you know, maybe, maybe more like 60-40 or 75, like 70-30, somewhere in there, similar to you, Gabe. Um, on the flip side, though, that's got to be one of the giddiest gotchas in all of Columbo. He is, you know, I, I talked earlier about how, you know, Columbo likes solving puzzles. That feels like that moment when you finally put together the puzzle and everything's in place and you're just, everything clicks. Um, and, and, and that level of emotion and that level of giddiness and excitement that you see in Columbo in that scene, that's the one thing that makes me think that, that he didn't know that he actually thought like, okay, I know that you did it, but I can't, I can't get you on it. So you win this time. Um, and then to that point too, the way that he races to the gown when he comes back, right? Like that also then speaks to like, I almost made this mistake. I got to go and get that piece of evidence before it could go anywhere. Uh, I have a very firm opinion that 100% he knew 
He, he knew the evidence was there when he tossed the gown on the couch. He knew he was going to tell Mayfield, yep, you got me. I'm out of your hair. You win, Doc. He knew he was going to leave the room, and then he knew he was going to burst back in and rain on Mayfield's parade. And I think it's largely because Colombo gives what he gets. And this guy, Mayfield, has had this coming for a while now. Sharon Martin innocent nurse, you know, murdered in cold blood. Then poor Harry Alexander, who didn't do anything except kick his dope habit and work at the petting zoo and, and gets murdered. And then, and like I said at the top, it, it, you know, if everything went Mayfield's way, it was going to be the trifecta with lovable old Heidemann suddenly dropping dead too. So I think, yeah, the arrogance and the hubris and the audacity that Mayfield displayed, I think Columbo wanted to stick it to him in as theatrical a manner as he possibly could. Gabe, you referenced the scene where Columbo gets mad, and, and you're right. I mean, you haven't seen all the episodes, but you're spot on that that does not happen. I mean, yeah, we, we mentioned in Murder by the Book how Columbo got a little blunt with Joanna Ferris about, you know, this man took your husband's life. That's different, though, right. as you're about to out. Right. Yeah. This is, this is Columbo face-to-face with the guy he knows is the killer. And Columbo, like we talked about, doesn't show his cards until he has to. And he flat out says, I believe that you killed Sharon Martin, and I believe you're trying to kill Dr. Heidemann. And this is, you know, Barry Mayfield is kind of laughing it up, you know, yucking it up. And, you know, well, Columbo, this, that, and the other. And he slams the coffee pot on the desk and tells him exactly, exactly what he believes. And so I, I think, yeah, Columbo knew exactly what he was doing. And he wanted... Mayfield to breathe that sigh of relief and then stick it to him because it was going to hurt that much more. I find myself leaning towards that he knew and it's the Dr. Heideman factor that is the clincher for me because in my opinion, like, yeah, Barry Mayfield is a jerk, but Columbo interacts with a lot of jerks in these episodes. He doesn't slam, uh, you know, Uh, kitchen utensils down on their desks and, you know, lay out, you know, in that firm detail uh, that strongly what they've done or what they're trying to do. I think he feels that urgency because he can or feels that he can save Heidemann's life. And so I think that's why he does that urgently in his office with the coffee pot because he knows that it will, that if Mayfield has any self-preservation, that he might try to back off his plan of killing Heidemann. And then at the end, you know, when he goes for this bit of performance, you know, maybe he has in the back of his mind, like, okay, well, in case I leave the room and something does go wrong and I can't get my hands on the suture, at least I saved Dr. Heidemann. I, I think, Gabe, your point of him at the very beginning of the, like the ultimate goal was to kill Dr. Heidemann. And that's the only one that he wasn't able to do is such an interesting part of this episode. And it has, it spins off into so many d- different sections uh, of it. I, I think it, 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 it makes it a fascinating episode. And I think Leonard Nimoy is, uh, he is just cold in this episode. And I think his portrayal is, uh, is certainly what makes this memorable. It, it strikes me that certainly of the two murderers we've discussed so far, I don't know that absence of motive or, or a reason, you know, 
like poor Lily Lasanka, I don't know that Ken Franklin would have killed anybody in his life again had he gotten away with killing his partner. I don't think I can say that for Barry Mayfield. This guy, as you point out, Dan, this guy was willing to off two complete innocents to cover up a murder he wasn't even able to get away with. It was a murder he had planned to, you know, lay as a time bomb. And yeah, poor Harry Alexander, as you say, he had turned his life around and now he gets ethered and injected and stair fallen. And, and yeah, just a brutal um, murder of, of nurse Sharon Martin. That was just, um, and yeah, I, I, I think it's a good thing that he's obviously it's a good thing. He catches all these murderers, but this guy would have done it again. Um, he's a hugely compelling part of, of this episode. Just one last point at Josh's question, you know, Josh, you were talking about the Heidemann factor and that actually makes me kind of go in the other direction because I think if it's in Columbo's mind that he could or did potentially save Heidemann, then it makes it all the more important to make sure that that evidence doesn't, doesn't go away, that, that, that it's not lost. Um, because Gabe, to your point, I think that we've seen that Mayfield would try to do it again. Um, so I think that then makes me believe that he, he might not have gone to that length. He wouldn't have gone to that length just for the performance of it when he knew that, you know, typically he's not able to save lives. This one life he was able to save. I want to bring up something as it relates to the character of Dr. Mayfield, because we just talked in Murder by the Book about Ken Franklin's willingness to offer up information just at the ready. I mean, Columbo's got all these questions and boy, here's Ken Franklin firing away. He's got answers to everything. Uh, Barry Mayfield goes kind of a, a different tact. On the one hand, he's so overtly guilty with the way that he interacts with the roommate. It is genuinely cringeworthy. Because, oh, did she have any other, oh, yeah, she used to work at the vet's clinic. Ah, oh, wasn't there, was, there was a guy, wasn't there, oh, yeah, maybe there was. I, I remember her saying something about uh, a Harry, oh, Harry, oh, yeah, there it is. You need, you need, make sure you go to the police, make sure you go to the police. And then obviously she's like, oh, well, what are we going to do now? Can we like have a drink or dinner or something? And well, I'm going to go home. Make sure you, make sure you go to the police. And it's like, oh, my Lord, like, Doc, we get it. You're so so guilty. But then when he's interacting with Columbo, I think he shows some actual uncharacteristic restraint when it comes to Columbo killers, because when they're talking about Harry Alexander specifically about the habits of, you know, this guy's, you know, so in need of a fix that he wears gloves when he kills her and does all this, that, and the other. And he's talking about dope addicts. And Barry Mayfield's like, well, I, I don't know what to tell you, you know, Lieutenant, I, I don't know any dope addicts. And it's like, that's, that's it right there. All you got to say is that. And if he and others just went down that road, they probably would be in the clear, but they, they have spent so much time concocting these perfect murders that it's almost like, it's like the notes that we prepare for all these podcasts. It's like, well, I did the research to do the notes. So I got to make sure I get everything in. Otherwise, what in the hell was the point? Well, it's like, no, 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 just you don't, you concocted the murder. You don't need to, you don't need to justify all your intelligence and all your hard work. Just say, I don't know. So you're equating the recording of this podcast to murdering people. I am not. However, <laughs> audibly speaking, I'm just saying that just because you do the work doesn't necessarily mean you need to beat people's brains in with it. So you're right, Dad. Uh, Barry Mayfield does 
resist the temptation to lay everything out. You, you know, he, he denies knowing uh, who Harry Alexander is or anything about uh, dope addicts. You know, I don't know much about Sharon Martin's personal life, but the mistake that he does make that a lot of Columbo murderers do is he gets super defensive whenever Columbo's gaze goes towards him. Columbo's talking about the the, the drug bottles in the cabinet and in the office there. It's like, you know, who, who has access to this? And immediately Mayfield's response is, are you accusing me because I had access to the bottles? And his defense isn't that like, I, she was my nurse. I, I loved her. How could you, you know, suggest that I would do this? It was, I had no motive to kill her. It, you know, a bit of a suspicious defense there, Doc. And Columbo's response to that is just so great, right? He comes back and says, no. oh, no, no, you, you have no motive at all. Or, or at least none that I can pin you down on right now. Right. Yeah. This guy is probably the smartest, I think, overall of the, but maybe also the most arrogant of the three murderers on display here. Lest we <laughs> be in danger of over-complimenting Letter Nimoy on this podcast, but he is a really good Dr. Barry Mayfield, the murderer, also slash surgeon. Um, surgeon murderer? That sounds like he murders surgeons. Anyway, as a very clever man who, uh, I, again, I think that the plot is clever. I think Barry Mayfield is a, yeah, really interesting. He's very arrogant. Yeah, he's already three steps ahead of Columbo, he thinks. No, I have no motive. Well, you haven't considered this. I really think you should go back and talk to this fellow, you know, the drug addict, boyfriend, ex kind of thing. Like, it, it has to be that guy. How come I can see that and you can't? You know, I mean, it, and of course it is sort of his doubt. Actually, that's not quite right. This guy comes closest, the, certainly of these three, to getting away with it. And all because he decides to plant evidence on Columbo himself, surreptitiously, um, in the, the very final scene. It's a bold, audacious move. And it almost paid off. Almost. Yeah, that arrogance is on display early on, too. Like, right when he yeah. is having that conversation with Sharon Martin. And, you know basically tells her flat out like you know what like if you really feel that way you should contact the police but before you do that orders her to file the bottles before losing herself in her own hysteria and it's just this like arrogance this this sense that he's you know, similar to to the way that ken franklin saw himself that he's you know the, the smartest person in the room he's thought this all the way through and I think that he does recognize that he needs to solve the problems that are popping up. I don't know. But I, I, so I was about to say, that, like, I don't think he ever thought that he would actually get caught. But I don't know if I think that because he was doing so much to try to make sure that he wasn't actually going to get caught. So that's it, it, just another interesting. I mean, it, it just makes me think of, of how wonderful, Gabe, as you pointed out, this performance is by Nimoy. And especially for us, right? We're used to seeing the emotionless. Uh, Mr. Spock and and to get you know very much the antithesis of that in this episode is is especially a treat for all of us I'm sure. Well I think this is a good example on the heels of Murder by the Book which was a preconceived planned concocted murder. This is a juxtaposition to that where Sharon Martin figures out what's going on here on a whim. He hears her on the phone with Marcus and Carlson setting up the appointment with a chemist. So now all of a sudden, Barry Mayfield knows, shoot, at 10 a.m. tomorrow, when she has this call with the chemist over at Marcus and Carlson, I'm going to be found out. 
So I basically have tonight to figure something out. So it's, it's more in cold blood. It's more impromptu. And so Mayfield is constantly trying to keep up. And yes, I mean, he is a super intelligent guy that he's able to think of all this stuff, presumably on the fly, but he's constantly chasing. And so that's where I, you know, I, I don't think that's like, I think his hubris and his general intelligence and love for himself, which are traits that virtually all Colombo killers have in common, you know, that's the only thing keeping him from thinking he's going to get caught because all this stuff is done in such rapid succession and, and done, I'm going to say hastily. And I only mean that because it wasn't premeditated. Some of these murders in Colombo, we know like, okay, it's planned out. It's thought out. I know my moment. I know what's going to happen. You know, I've thought it down to a T. This was not premeditated. This is, I got to do something quick. Okay. And now I got to make it look like something else. So I think he's constantly chasing. So I don't know that he necessarily doesn't think he's going to ever get caught except his own love of himself blinds him from, from feeling that way. Well, and it's interesting because the second murder is definitely a little more premeditated. I mean, he, he waits for some amount of time, but a good amount of time in Harry Alexander's apartment. He's also provided himself with the story of Harry Alexander's death. By that point, he brings along the vials of, of, you know, the same kind of drugs. He says he's telling Columbo he's on just as further proof. You see, I told you I was right the whole time. He's, he's making his own prophecies come true in doing that. You know I mean? That, that there is definitely a coldness evidence now. Yeah. Not just in his first instinct to silence her as well. And, you know, I guess I'll just use this tire iron versus, um, you know, I guess this guy will get, you know, ether and silent injection. I don't know, you know, this guy and this guy's just going to, you know, fall down the stairs, you know, but it is interesting. This guy definitely throws a little bit of what well, I guess what I'm understanding is some of the typical Columbo playbook um, into the air. He sort of scatters this one a little bit. He, um, he doesn't get his, his main guy. Um, there's a lot of collateral damage in terms of body count. And, and you're right, Dan, in that he is, this guy's really playing on the floor. He's, he's very cool under pressure. That seems to be the big takeaway from, from Barry Mayfield in this, in this, because he is, it seems premeditated. I mean, that's, it's almost surprising me to hear you say that because he is so cool. It almost seems like he's planned all this out, but no, I mean, he's just, he's cool as a cucumber. He's a cool customer up until he's not as, as is always the case here. All right, so as we did with Murder by the Book, I'm just going to throw it out there. Any final thoughts about A Stitch in Crime before we move on to our final episode? Any scenes or characters, moments or observations that anybody would like to comment on before we move on to our final episode? Uh, so, Dan, you reference in the lead into the episode or in, in the lead into our episode that, you know, the, the character of Columbo would typically, you know, find his way into the episode 10 to 15 minutes in. And this is one where he, <laughs> Gabe, you, you will often say the characters arrive fully formed. Well, well Columbo arrives fully formed but in a different sense um you know he 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 shows up groggy he didn't sleep well he's shattering eggshells across the crime scene and then uses the murder weapon to crack open a hard-boiled egg and it's just this like it's a wonderful encapsulation of who Columbo is right because he he appears to be the bumbling police officer there are components of him that are very much bumbling like this, but that's all. And, and this is another part of, and, and something we didn't talk about too much in reference to murder by the book. Um, but, you know, 
Peter Falk is, you know, uh, has so much of his acting career in comedy and he's funny. And this is one of those instances in which you're getting that humorous part of Lieutenant Columbo on top of the problem solving intelligence that we see so often. I just want to drop something on top of that. A, I think Peter Falk's entire performance with the occasional coffee pot slam exception is hilarious. I mean, I think every quirk of his, there's a moment when he's in, in murder by the book when he, when he's making the omelet um, and he's asking, you know, he's got some of the ingredients and he just, he's bent over the counter and he goes, ah, skillet. And she points and he just, and it's sort of like a full body turn. Like it's a really subtle bit of physical comedy, but it's skill. Okay. And just drifts sort of just full body drifts off one side. It's so well considered and put together. That That's what I mean by like he arrives fully formed, like Peter Falk has Columbo's whole life in his head. He's just living this guy's life at that moment in this story in full person. It, it, I think it is phenomenal. Um, I did want to mention, Dan, you, you brought up earlier, um, yeah, how just truly guilty Barry Mayfield is to be, I mean, if she were to, if the roommate were to remember a very accurate conversation with him and recount word for word, like, yeah, no, we're not going to, I'm just taking you home now. Make sure you call Columbo in the morning. Do you want me to write down his number for you right now? Let me do it twice in case you forget. I can write it on your window too. Let me just, I'm going to, this is also the number. If you refog it in the morning, you can see, make sure you call Lieutenant Columbo. I mean, it's that egregious. Um, but really of note, um, and this speaks to Columbo's intelligence and his skills that you're talking about, Jordan, is Columbo sort of slowly eliciting that information, the real information about that um, admission from the roommate in a conversation they have later. He doesn't full out ask anything demanding, anything um, accusatory. He, his questions are all, oh, so he said this and you thought that. And, and she said, well, no, no, he, he brought it up of his own volition okay, but you guys were, were talking about it earlier and that's how it came up and because, you know, they've, they'd seen each other recently. No, no, they had, you know, and it's, and, and he gets a piece more every time and you can, you can just see it all coming together. It, it's very clever writing and it's, a, and it's great. It's pure Columbo. Uh, you know, it's really clever stuff. Um, I just want, want to note also the, that Leonard Nimoy throws a, he keeps throwing a party at his house as soon as he's, you know, as soon as he thinks he's, no, it's not even that. It's after I think he, he kills, um, he goes it's after he kills Sharon Martin. Yeah, it's after he kills Sharon Martin. He, he, even still goes he says on. something. He says something about how, like, well, it was too late to cancel. But then the thing that gets me about that then is like, not one hour later, he's then meeting with Sharon Martin's roommates. So it wasn't too late to cancel your party, but I guess it was. There was still enough time to leave your party early. Um, and, and the game that scene that you were referencing, I that scene's awesome too, because you know Columbus getting that information out, uh, out. out from Marsha and you know he's saying like oh so like were you already planning on getting together and, and she says oh no like he, he he called to check up on me and Columbo's response is oh well wasn't that thoughtful of him Funny. and it's just this line of like oh well eh, that's convenient so the, the the last things that I'll talk about with this one are you know uh, bringing it back to the dorky connections um, I thought it was uh, particularly cool I don't know if it was deliberate or not but uh, one of the conversations that Columbo is having with uh, Mayfield when he's talking about the suture, he just says, talking right to Letter Demoy, right to Mr. Spock himself, and he says, suture, fascinating. <laughs> and I thought, like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if they put that, that, use that word, you know, deliberately. And Jordan, you were talking about how Barry Mayfield is a little bit the antithesis, in your opinion, of Mr. Spock. I wasn't so sure about that. 
I, I mean, maybe he is given the comparison that I'm about to draw, but I could see Barry Mayfield uh, being quite close to mirror universe Spock, capable of doing some pretty uh, terrible things, but always in a cold, calculated way. Um, I, I think in that re respect, playing Mr. Spock probably helped Leonard Nimoy um, in his portrayal of the dastardly Dr. Mayfield. I totally agree with that, Josh. Um, I, I hesitated right before the word antithesis for that exact reason, because that picture of Mirror Spock came into my head. Um, last thing that I, 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 I again want to go back to that, that entry scene of Columbo one more time. The other last thing that I love about that scene is that he's searching everywhere for coffee, and the thing that gets delivered to him is just like this huge carton of orange juice. Like, not one of those small little bottles of it, but like the thing you would have in your refrigerator that you pour your orange juice out, out of every morning. And it's just the, these, these, little, these little details that, you know, Gabe, to, to the point that you've made so often, these little details that when you put them together really fully formed this character of Columbo. Delivered by Columbo cameo stalwarts Michael Alley. Well, I don't know if that's fascinating, but it is interesting. It is interesting if you're a Columbo junkie like we are, because there's a hell of a Columbo drinking game to be had by all the Michael Lally appearances uh, through the years. Josh, I just want to quickly uh, follow up. I think 100% the line, the fascinating line was thrown in there uh, because they cast Leonard Nimoy. I think that absolutely goes without saying. The only other final couple of quick observations I have, Jordy, back to your scene, Columbo's introduction. I mean, this is classic groggy Columbo. And I love the moment when, oh, well, we got the murder weapon here, Lieutenant. And it's, oh, let me see, let me see that. And you think, oh, he's going to like observe and find some kind of sharp clue that nobody else picked up on. Nope. He's just going to use it to crack his hard boiled egg. Like what a woeful move by a senior officer here to use literally the murder weapon to open his breakfast. But we get the jokey Columbo when he's observing the surgery. They're talking, oh, could we just, could we just talk about the suture in so many words because, because it's just too much to be able to actually observe it. But when the rubber hits the road and he's watching, you know, Barry Mayfield operate like on Dr. Hawk. Heideman later on, he is eyes on the prize. He is not steering away. So that tells you that maybe some of that earlier part of Columbo was more play acting, but that he is at the end of the day, a true professional. Okay. So we have covered murder by the book season one. We have covered a stitch in crime season two, our final episode that we're going to delve into as part of our Columbo podcast actually comes from the final season of the original run of Columbo original air date, January 30th, 1978. The second episode in season seven, it is murder under glass. The Dorkfest connection here. Once again, our big baddie, this time played not by a member of the Trek universe, but rather the 007 realm. It is, of course, Louis Jordan, who was the big bad in Octopussy, for all of you Bond fans out there. The gist of this one is that Louis Jordan plays Paul Gerard. Mr. Paul Gerard, a very established and esteemed restaurant critic, he can make your restaurant go with a good review. He can sink it with a bad one. And the gist is that 
Mr. Gerard has been working with other restaurants underhandedly. They've been paying him money on the side to write good reviews so that they can help their restaurant. One of those is Victorio's restaurant. But Vittorio, he's had enough. He is out, and he's going to expose Gerard for the fraud that he is. He's going to ruin him. And so what does Paul Gerard do? Well, of course, the only logical step is to eliminate Vittorio, which he does a very complicated murder ploy here as Paul Gerard injects blowfish poison through a wine cork opener into a bottle of wine, which Vittorio then drinks, and he is killed. Gabe, this was the latter run of the original run of Columbo's, and we do get a kind of different-looking version of the lieutenant. Many of the standard tropes and trademarks are there, but maybe a little more embellished version of Columbo. What were your initial thoughts as it relates to Murder Under Glass? I greatly appreciated, firstly, uh, getting a, a latter-day Columbo episode from you guys. It was really cool to see you know, the very first episode and then something from season two. You know, they've got some legs under them. They're really going. Um, and it's cool to see something from from the last season. It's a very seasoned show at this point. Um, I think it's very comfortable in itself, but it is clearly still firing on all cylinders. Because um, of the three, this was, I think, the one that maybe tickled my fancy, whatever that means, the most. I thought this was just a delightful episode as I've become sort of food obsessed in this uh, quarantine time, as many have, um, you know, both in terms of uh, cooking, but also eating. This says, uh, you know, <laughs> an amateur gourmand was fun to really watch uh, all this pretentious food stuffs being food stuffed around. Um, Louis Jordan is just so much evil fun as Paul Gerard. And I think of all of them too, of the three episodes again, Again, of the three episodes, this, I think, was maybe my favorite relationship between Columbo and the murderer. He always has some sort of back and forth. You know, he pursues them. He shows up at odd places, knocking at their cabin windows. Um, but, yeah, that just happening to show up at restaurants and going out grocery shopping. And then, you know, back again at the scene of the crime, cooking dinner with each other, which is such a terrific scene. Um, cooking dinner for him, rather. Yeah, th this just, I, I thought, was so much fun uh, as an episode which is not great because obviously there's always murder involved and it's very sad he leaves behind a bereaved community and son and stuff like that and but really oh boy the verbal interplay between these guys is just so much fun but really at the end of the day it's so much fun watching these guys go at it um when especially when the writing is as seasoned as it is again the final scene where again i think everybody knows what's going on but nobody is saying the truth and um, as Columbo is cooking his his scallopini for Paul Girard, he um, is still very deferential. I'm 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 putting the butter in now, sir. I'm I'm, I'm now going to saute. I'm I'm sauteing this now, sir. Up to the very end of the conversation that they have, where you know it, it's a great little admission that you know, Lieutenant, after he tastes the scallopini, Lieutenant, I I wish you had been a chef. You know, I understand perfectly, sir. I, I mean, there is a weird genuine respect between these guys and it's a fun um contrast too because in season one that very first episode that we watch your murder by the book as he's making the omelet colombo says he's not much of a chef um i think he in fact calls himself a, a fairly terrible one and uh, and here he is quite handily you know making an old standby in uh in a well-equipped admittedly kitchen so you know again just speaking to do we ever really know Columbo? How much do we, even as the audience, get to see of him? Because we only ever really see him on the case. 
he gives all kinds of hints as to what his regular or even married life is, and yet, you know, never, never do we see a glimpse of it. So, um, again, yeah, I thought this was just delightful, a lot of fun, um, a great murderer again. Um, Lose Your Not is great. Uh, really interesting to find out that the actress Shira Denise, who plays Eve Plummer, Paul Gerard's accomplice, is Peter Falk's real-life wife. Looking at the notes here, did not know that. Uh, that's pretty neat. A lot of great scenes, a lot of great food stuff, and a lot of great dialogue. I, I, I loved this episode. So yeah, th this was, I, I think as kids, I, I know Jordan feels this way too. This was one of, if not our favorites as, as kids, you know, like 10 to 12 years old when we were first watching Columbo's, this is the one that we would go back to and do not watch this episode on an empty stomach because you will just, it, this one will make you so hungry, man. Gabe, you were talking about the, the interplay with Paul Gerard and Columbo in this episode. And it, when looking at the set of three that we gave you, uh, it struck me that we really gave you three pretty awful humans as murderers. There's not a whole lot to like about any of these guys. And that's really not like, there's a fair number of Columbos where, the, where there is at least one solid thing, if not plenty to like about the, the, the murderers, not these three guys, but, but Paul Gerard is, is probably the, gets the closest of this bunch. And certainly the interaction between Gerard and Columbo is the most playful. As Dan said, that probably has a little bit to do with this being the seventh season. Columbo's idiosyncrasies are amped up a bit. Um, the, you know, the, it's not enough to have the, you know, the trope of the rumpled raincoat. Uh, you know, he needs to be a little bit more disheveled. You know, we're going to put him in a chef's hat uh, at the end for, for a twist. Just wait until you get to meet Joe Devlin because, uh, you know, if you want to have a good time, just wait for them. But this is not a bad place to start with Murder Under Glass. The other interesting thing, too, Gabe, when you brought up the idea of the relationship between these two, it's interesting that you do get that sensation, even though Columbo was on record as saying, you know, I respect you, but I don't like you. Um, so you have this, this interplay where they are friendly and they are seemingly congenial, um, but there's also a stated level of disrespect um, that, that Columbo puts on to Paul Gerard. Um, I also think that this is, Josh, going back to your point, I think you're right that, you know, there's a, there's a long history of not necessarily sympathetic killers, but maybe killers or murderers that you can sympathize with. And that's definitely not what you see here. Um, another thing that, that is kind of a common trope of a lot of Columbo episodes is the, the moment in which the audience knows that Columbo knows. And for my money, this is one of the episodes where this might happen earlier than in any other episode. And it happens the first time that Columbo is seeing Paul Gerard. He's been called back to come to the, uh, Victorio's restaurant. The, the, the initial officer is talking to Paul Gerard and that officer tells him like, wait here, I'm going to go talk to Columbo. Columbo's, you know, polishing off the meal that, um, that, that Albert's prepared for him. He, 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 he talks to the other officer for a second, looks at Paul Gerard, looks back at the officer, looks back again. And, and, it, and it's that moment right there. You were like, yep, 
He already knows. And then it's just a matter of, okay, how is Colombo going to piece it together? Um, and, you know, we've talked about how Colombo is a show about the process. Um, you know, when we were talking earlier about murder by the book, I, I had the thought that Colombo is not so much about the what as it is about the how. It's not about um, who's getting killed. It's not about who's going to get caught. It's about how the killer is going to do it and how Columbo is going to find him out. And I just think that, you know, you have kind of that interesting sort of introduction of that idea there. And then you realize, okay, you have another hour of this episode where Columbo is going to be piecing that together. It's all in the basil and the garlic. We uh, watching these episodes are much in the same uh, position that Columbo is in. Uh, you know, Jay, you say, you mentioned how Columbo, you know, knows he has his man right away in Murder Under Glass. He says something similar in uh, Murder by the Book. Of course, we as the audience know because we see the crime being committed. Columbo's trying to figure out how to prove the, the murder that he knows was committed by this person. And we're trying to do the same thing. I, 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 think, I think that's a real interesting part of watching these, these episodes that helps us identify with Columbo even more. We're right there next to him. We want to figure out how he's going to figure it out. I think you're spot on there, Josh. It makes him so relatable. And I think that is in part what can make really good TV and really good movies is when you can create relatable characters that the audience can empathize, sympathize, relate to. And you're right. We're right there with Columbo. We have, we have the one piece of information that he doesn't have. We know who did it. But we're sitting there on the couch right alongside Columbo wondering, okay, we know, but like, you got to be able to prove it. Court of law, you've got to have evidence. You got to be able to prove it. So how, how are we going to get there? We know the steps that the killer took, but what is Columbo going to kind of piece together and, and, and make it all work? And so piecing that puzzle together is as much fun for us as we have come to learn it is for Columbo, and he loves the gamesmanship. And I thought it was on full display right away in this episode. Jordy, you mentioned, I mean, he, he makes Gerard sweat in the lobby of Victorio's there in, in the foyer before he waves him on over and says, yep, okay, now you can come on over and, and they converse and they whatever. And then the end of that scene is great because, oh, I can't let you get away with it, Mr. Gerard. And you think, you think oh my God, like there's, there's an hour left of this episode. How in the world does he have him already? And you can see on Gerard's face, he thinks, oh my God, he's, he sussed this out already. How in the world did he do I can't let you get away without it's that onion sauce. And then <laughs> Louis Jordan's reaction there is so great because it's kind of that stuttered exhale of relief. And it's very much like, oh, yeah, I need to change my, my undies now. But it was soubise, sauce soubise. It's a simple recipe. I'll get it for you. But he's, I mean, he's got him from the very beginning. And then, yeah, the interplay between these two is a lot more fun than Columbo and Dr. Mayfield, uh, certainly more than that. Columbo and Ken Franklin have some fun interplay, but I, I think it's, it's ramped up and really exemplified in this episode more so than the other two we talked about. The other thing that helps with relatability is just that Peter Falk is just a puddle of humanity. I mean, uh, 
watching him cook dinner and talk about uh, making this recipe for my pop, you know, and talking about his house growing up. It just like brings tears to your eyes. This is an incredible piece of art that Peter Falk was able to to, to put forth as Columbo, as entertaining as it is. It's also this fantastic portrayal of, of humanity. 100%, Josh. I said a few minutes ago that, you know, you never really get much in the way of Columbo as a, as a person. You have to glean everything you can, much as the, you know, murderers do as an audience from what you see at the crime scene and, and from the, from the case. But this is a rare case where he does yeah, give a little bit of insight here and, and you have no reason to believe that he's lying. He has, and he has no reason to, he levels with these guys, you know, that that's sort of his own measure of respect. He's, he's never false with these guys. He might lead them on he, that gamesmanship, Dan, you say he, he engages in that, but um, yeah, that, that I think is a really honest story. And for so much of what I think we enjoy dorkily speaking, they're able to tap into that humanity and this is yeah 100% a phenomenal example of the kind of depth you can find with what otherwise might be considered you know kind of pulpier you know throwaway material I think this is emblematic of why we love this stuff I really like the grocery shopping scene Columbo says he has to bring dinner home to to Mrs. Columbo and uh, or he was gonna go yeah he was gonna go shopping and yeah just like the the almost like glee on his face like oh we're gonna go shopping is is just so much fun and yeah that subsequent scene is a really another good just sort of bait and switch cat and mouse game that's the is scene this, is this right i don't think it's squishy enough <laughs> that's the scene where colombo unceremoniously shoots down gerard's only possible uh, avenue to get away with it that it was an accident the poison got into the bottle by accident like yeah but how stupid are you yeah but i actually think so yes okay as far-fetched as that may be at least he started with that okay like accidents happen right that's a thing and so presumably this could have happened so he throws that idea out there which you're right Columbo summarily dismisses you know he's done the research and you know the vineyards say there's no no sign of any any infestation or poison or whatever shout so, out world health organization so now there's this other theory about <laughs> this is the laughable <laughs> right so okay right so remembering it too he was trying so that, right, the, the theory, to murder someone else right so victorio is trying to murder someone else maybe gerard own wine. right and makes the fatal mistake of drinking his own wine and gerard like the world-class buffoon that he is yes i can anything see to defer suspicion from me he actually says I can see how that might have happened, which Columbo then twists right back. You can? Well, then maybe you can explain it to me, which means I knew that was a bunk theory. And the fact that you're going along with it tells me that, yep, I'm just zeroing in the bullseye. I got my guy for sure. I thought, I thought Gerard was okay when he threw out the accidental poison theory that i think as if as theories go when you're the guilty party that works but to go along with colombo's proposed theory of victorio drank his own poison wine and how he could that 
just slap the cuffs on him right there. He is guilty. It is great how he sort of lets that one play out. Sort of just leaves it on the table for Gerard to pick up and run with. And yeah, they, there they go. Well, and that reminds me of what we're talking about with the stitch and crime, how he, you know, asks these very purposeful questions to see what information or what reaction he can then glean from them. And, you know, Dan, when you were recounting that scene where Columbo says, well, maybe you can explain it to me, Gerard's response to that reminds me of when he was in the car after first meeting Columbo at the beginning of the episode because then he says something along the way oh 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 yes that's ridiculous but it's totally just this like and I feel like you know while Gerard's plan for actually killing Victorio was complicated but maybe not necessarily complex in, in the sense that you know it is, is a complex it was a complicated murder. The, the steps of it were not necessarily all that complex. Um, the after effect is where Gerard really does not do well, where he really is just out of his, out of his depth, right? You know, constantly he's in, in trying to respond to Columbo's queries or questions. He's constantly tripping up. He's constantly several steps behind what Columbo's trying to do. Um, and in that sense, you know, it's it, it's kind of it's kind of cool to see Columbo just kind of play with him for so much of this episode. This guy really did only think so far ahead as like just as far as the murder, and then yeah, I'm sure everything will be sunshine and daisies after that. That'll all be good. I'll go on extorting. So one scene that I I want to reference is is the scene where Columbo ends up joining Gerard and Eve Plummer for dinner when when their their guest is there and this is where colombo obviously gets to you know the, the the fugu poison because gerard like the total more well i guess i was going to say total moron that he is he's serving it up for dinner but you know how could he have known that colombo was going to show up i suppose if you're a killer in one of these episodes you have to assume colombo's always going to show up but some really neat and quintessential Columbo moments you know first of all he knocks at the door and Eve opens it and it's just a plume of smoke comes through it's like okay we know exactly who's here now and it's Mr. Gerard at home and she said I'm not sure and it's like well is it a big place or is he just out to the police because I'm, I'm working on arresting this guy and then she gets to the door and it she's there and Paul slides the door open reveals Columbo, and he's got this very sure look on his face and then it's oh i'm so you know then the unassuming part i didn't know you had guests i didn't know you were having dinner i'm so sorry this whole scene he comes in he says i, I just had one thing i wanted to ask you he doesn't ask that one thing until he's like walking out the door so he gets all this other information just by pure happenstance and i this scene's a good example of getting a piece of information. So some of the clues that we get are kind of club you over the head clues. Like when he sits down and here's the fugu sashimi and it's deadly poison. We're like, oh, okay, well, bang. Like Columbo gets that clue. But the other clue that he gets here is that his guest, and I'm blanking on the guy's name right now, came on the movie flight. And it's, you know, he's, oh, it's a mystery movie and, you know, it's very entertaining and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's just sort of this, this innocuous little bit. 
we circle back to that later on because then we understand that, oh, okay, well, he said he came in on the movie flight. That meant this time. And so it's just a neat example of these little clues that get dropped in that Columbo pieces together sort of without our knowledge. And so when you get the big reveal at the end, you're like, oh, that's right. That's where he got that piece of information. Oh, and I remember that scene earlier on. He got that little little clue right there. And so he's always kind of gobbling up this information. And of course, that scene is the, is the great moment where it's, um, you know, do, do, do you have a hot suspect? And I do, you know, I've got my eye on one and he, that head turn and then <laughs> Gerard's reaction to that is just priceless because it's that little kind of coy giggle, but like, also I'm totally screwed. Yeah. Dan, you mentioned Eve Plummer. She is, um, a bit of a weak link in in Paul Gerard's plan. She, she's she's given up in, information all over the place. Uh, you know, she's she's the one who encourages Colombo to eat the fugu. Uh, is is tripped up pretty easily with the Irene De Milo uh, ruse. Uh, I, I suppose to Paul Gerard's credit he recognizes that Eve is a weak link and tries to get rid of her by sending her to Paris. It just, you know, falls for the three, she needs three days to get ready. Barry Mayfield would have just sent her down a flight of stairs. That does become a bit of a, I don't want to say trademark necessarily, but yeah, some of these killers who have to sort of adjust on the fly their weak links are, are are very noticeable, Josh. Like the deeper they get into it, the more loose ends they have to tie up. And as they tie up their loose ends, they just become more exposed. You know, Gerard commits this crime, a crime which he had to commit because of the money laundering, which was not a solo endeavor. He had somebody else involved. So he's got to tie that. So it's just it's just more people out there to expose the killer. And in trying to cover all of your bases, it, it's a lot to try and handle. And obviously none of the killers are able to do so because Columbo always finds a way to nab him. And that's also a good example too of Columbo recognizing that this is, you know, Eve Plummer, Irene DeMilo, she's not the brains of the operation. You know, she's in it because she likes Paul Gerard and yes, it's going to help her career or whatever, but like he's going to go to the weak spot and he's going to expose it. Uh, you know, we, we see this happen throughout the series where I'm going to use you to get the guy who I know is really guilty. You're sort of guilty by association, but if I need to use you to get the guy who's actually guilty, I'm, I'm not above doing that. Another small piece of information he gets in that scene, Dan, is that Eve is going to take this trip and it's Paul Gerard who offers that up desperately trying to change the conversation away from the fugu and then when he's at the bank and he hears about the traveler's checks that's when it clicks that it's Eve Plummer aka Irene who is who is actually Irene DeMilo who has access to this account that means it's Gerard's money that's the connection I need to prove that Gerard was the murderer. This is the best cake I've ever, obviously referencing the cake that's in, that's in the scene, or maybe not obviously, but referencing the cake that's in that scene that, that, that Josh just talked about, taking it in a 
different but related direction. I mean, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, you, you can't watch this episode on an empty stomach because Columbo just eats his way through the entire episode. Uh, one question that I do want to throw out, Dan, I hope you don't mind. I guess I believe the last time I moderated, Dan, you posed a question and kind of took the reins away from me. So turnabout is fair play. If you could eat any of the things that Columbo ate in this episode, What's the one that you would choose? I like that um, plate he got courtesy of the chef when he met Gerard out for brunch. The The waiter brings over, I can't remember exactly, what, it's like caviar. Caviar, uh, caviar salmon, foie gras. And foie gras. Yeah, yeah. I, something about that. I mean, it's pretty good. Ponzi Gabe, nice. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would have gone for the, the stuffed mushrooms. I'm certainly not going to go for Columbo's scallopini, which <laughs> looks like it's been burnt to a crisp. <laughs> hey, when Gerard's enough, cutting through it. If it's good enough for Paul Gerard, you know, it's good enough for me. I'll, I'll, I'll eat what Columbo's cooking. It's the, it's the coffee cake for me, for sure. Man, I got, oh, I got a soft spot for coffee cake, and if it's the best cake Columbo's yeah. ever tasted, even before he gets the critical piece of information, then, then you know it's then you know, and it and it's a sizable cake too. It's got some height to it. You know, it's not it's not one of these like dinky little cakes. But yeah, that that would like that it's would got some for sure fruit be it for and me. Some nuts in there it looks looks delicious. That's sign right sign me up. Yeah, Dan wins. That's it. The, the coffee cake is coffee cake wins. This is a it's a delightful episode for all of these for the food for the for the interplay for yeah the little quirks in the performances. Um, it's a really well made episode. And similarly, I just want to give this a quick shout out as I discovered this in my own research. Um, nobody's going to top, you know, a director like Spielberg being involved in the first episode here, but we have a bit of a heavyweight directing this episode, actually, um, in Jonathan Demme, who is known for Silence of the Lambs, um, among other things, but also Philadelphia and um, documentary films, concert films like The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. So, I mean, it, and it's uh, that final scene is basically what I want to reference in, in point of that. I think the final scene in that kitchen with Columbo make, wearing the chef's hat, making the veal and, and the sort of sort of final literally do or die gambit that they're each playing with each other in trying to make their case and defend their case. And between them, again, a poison bottle of wine, since Paul Gerard has, has decided he's going to try and pull the same trick. Um, you know, I didn't mean to, but I sort of somewhat dismissed this as the princess bride gag earlier in the episode here and um yeah while it's effectively similar it's it's really played out to good dramatic effect here because you don't know that Columbo has switched the glasses on him necessarily until he until he says it um so again that well obviously on the show Columbo it is highly unlikely that the detective lieutenant Columbo is going to be harmed fatally or substantially in any way shape or form um they do a really good job of making you think that Sometimes these guys might just get away. Every now and then, this could be the one. Maybe Columbo gets bested, but of course, not this time. Not even in you know under the presence, under the influence of so much excellent food. One of just three instances in the original 1970s run of the show where the the killer a attempted to kill Columbo. Lady in waiting, is sort of. She points a gun at him and he kind of talks her down. Uh, the other instance, though, is is another seventh season episode. So clearly that was a, a trick they went to a couple of times in that final season. Uh, everybody's mentioned it, and, and I think it's appropriate that this is the most fun of the three episodes that we've discussed. 
We will get to Gabe momentarily as to whether he thinks the most fun also means his favorite of the three in determining the winner of this particular podcast. But before we get to that, any final thoughts, observations, comments as it relates to our final episode we are discussing this evening, Murder Under Glass? Michael V. Gazzo as Vittorio Rossi. He's, he's tr- tremendous. Get, getting, a, getting a high usage rate. Vittorio got like eight minutes of playing time, jacked up four threes, grabbed three rebounds, and committed four fouls. And then he's out. One little bit of research that I came across um, in looking at this episode. Um, does anybody know the interesting backstory of Louis Chardin? Um, so it, it, French actor, he actually was recruited by the Nazi party to do Nazi propaganda films and wouldn't do them. And because of that, spent a year as a member of a chain gang. So sorry to take this like really serious turn, but I just thought it was very, very, you know, very interesting. I mean, it forum, I'm just trying to think of the right octopusy quote to riff on. <laughs> yeah from this i was gonna say but, that uh, is, that anyway. is interesting but would have would have been more interesting is if he actually played the romulan first officer in an episode of next generation <laughs> we are the worst <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is that is a truly unique tidbit there jordy and for your final thought that's quite a way to go because i for one would have said the banquet scene. I mean, this scene, we've talked about this th- tremendous episode, and then we get this old man. The full in, orchestral yeah, version. Yeah, the orchestral version with yeah, the march of those 1970s, those classically 1970s dishes. And this after Columbo has polished off God knows what throughout the course of this episode. He goes to town on the banquet, gives it the old... A-OK on this meal. And then we get the nice, the, the acceptance speech there by, uh, by Mario De Luca, mostly by Columbo. I'm not sure how he knows the two things in this world that he wants are to be a success and to have his uncle's, you know, perpetrator brought to justice. But Columbo knows and he's going to do so. He lays down the gauntlet on Gerard. But that, that scene is just in a, in a fun delightful episode that is one of the more fun and delightful moments for me Columbo's a, a, a good public speaker he gets up in front of a crowd in another seventh season uh episode he's he, good on his feet tenente Columbo well I'll tell you what the secret to a good speech is no words just milk <laughs> <laughs> all right so now we come to the big moment, the culmination of our Colombo endeavor here. We have discussed murder by the book. We have discussed a stitch in crime, and we have discussed murder under glass. All three tremendous episodes, very different as it relates to the Colombo genre, but all uh, you know, hitting those Colombo sweet spots. So each of those episodes was selected by one of Josh Jordan and myself, Gabe. As we mentioned at the top, had never seen any Columbo before this little exercise. So Gabe, after watching those three episodes and in determining the winner of this podcast, which of those three aforementioned episodes was your favorite? It's a really tough choice, um, and I've done no shortage of agonizing over it. I couldn't have agonized more if he'd hit me with an agonizer. 
you know, you've heard me praise all three episodes for various things um, over the course of, of this podcast. Uh, Murder Under Glass is the most fun. It is the shore leave of Columbo, as it were. It's a great relationship between Columbo and the murderer. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, a Stitch in Crime has the best killer by far. It's got Leonard Nimoy in, you know, the role of a lifetime if, you know, he hadn't also played this pointy-eared, green-blooded so-and-so that we all adore so much. And then you've got the Steven Spielberg pilot. I mean, there's nothing to argue with here amongst any of these, but um, my favorite episode today is going to be the one that I think really brings together what it seems to me Columbo is is about um, and gets everything right in the in kind of the opening swing. It's a home run. It's murder by the book. Oh! Yes! Yes! Thank you, Gabo. That was my selection. And admittedly, I thought the Spielberg, the Spielberg hook was going to get you. Uh, I, I do adore that episode. It, it is, it is one of it's, the it's five fantastic. or ten best of the entire run. But I thought, boy, Steven Spielberg, Gabo, Columbo introduction. I think I got a winner here. Turns out I was right. And maybe it's predictable on my part because of the very reasons that you state. Um, but boy, I do think some of Spielberg's talents, even as Josh pointed out, are on full display. We get we get some pre-echoes of, of Raider's iconism. Um, we get a, a fresh, you know, hard out the gate Peter Falk performance. We have a, a brilliant blueprint and template for episodes to follow. Um, a great slimy, smarmy murderer and Jack Cassidy and yeah, just to, you know, something that's really going to set the tone. And yet it's all kind of there at the same time. It, it had to be murdered by the book. It was really tough because I did adore watching Leonard Nimoy play through this guy. And I, it felt like he really enjoyed this too. Um, I mean, it's all, everybody's been through this show on further reflection. It almost seems like the law and order of its day um, in terms of guest stars and, you know, who shows up slumming it on TV, so to speak. And yeah, of course, the the murder under glass, as we've spoken, is just a delightful episode. But yeah, I think murder by the book brings it all together, and it's the first episode. It's just it's undeniably cool. So, Gabe, did you have any inkling while you were watching them of who suggested what which episode? I've been trying to figure this out. I something in me said that murder by the book was either Dan or you, Josh, that had it. Um, and I'm between the, you and Jordan. I'm not certain. <laughs> I mean, I've got a 50-50 chance and I need a break. Sorry. But, uh, I'm just not certain who's got which episode here. So I'm just going to have to sort of flip a mental coin and go with it. Um, Cons owner, crazy Ivan. <laughs> uh, he always goes to Starbucks at the bottom half of the hour. No, wait, hang on. I got a better joke than that. Hang on. <laughs> Why? Because last time he went to Murder by the Book? No, because he always goes to a stitch in crime at the bottom half of the hour. So I think that Murder Under Glass was Jordan and A Stitch in Crime was Josh. Ding, ding, ding. Ah, nice well done. Thank you. Although, let us not uh, forget the true record-breaking winner here, the moderator, Dan. The first, perhaps not only, but the first time that's happened. Well, I like to throw these wrinkles out there just to keep you fellas on your toes. But uh, admittedly, Gabe, I... I you make great points about why all three are tremendous episodes. I think the reason that I ultimately went with murder by the book, yes, the Spielberg hook, but it, it just continues to impress me 
when rewatching that episode, the way this character and this series, as you pointed out, just seems to arrive fully formed. Yes, there were a couple of pilots, um, three and, and one year before that. And you go back and you watch those and they are admittedly, I don't want to say a little bit different, but they, they are just a smidge different, particularly as it relates to the character. But man, Murder by the Book, they hit the ground running and, and it just takes off from there. And admittedly, over the course of 40 some odd episodes in the 70s, not all of them are as good as the three episodes that we talked about today. That's going to be the case with any run. But it just impressed the hell out of me the way Peter Falk showed up with that character all ready to go and the way this series you know, Levinson and Link, they knew exactly what they were going to try and do right from the very beginning. And uh, I think it's why, you know, at least for the the three of us, Josh Jordan and myself, we've enjoyed it so much through the years. We're thrilled to be able to share it with you now and going forward and why it's been, you know, so enjoyable for so many people for so many years. And Dan, I think you make an important point there too, because while you may have won this episode of Dorkfest, the podcast, the real winner here is the franchise of Columbo, because in Gabe, it has a new fan. It for sure does. No, I'm going to delight in discovering these and sharing these with you and my own dorky revelations. Did you guys know X was also in Y? And you guys are going to be like, yes, my son, I'm aware. Yes, young Padawan. Hey, speaking of which, you did say that you went beyond these three episodes, which, yeah, uh, what else? yeah if, if you don't mind us, at, yeah. and you don't need to know episode titles, you can, I'm sure I, we know the titles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, part of this is a little bit of streaming bias, because often some of these episodes are just the very next one that happened to play. I haven't yet sought out the William Shatner episode. It's on my radar. I'm going to do it. <laughs> but honestly, the one in particular that I really have enjoyed um, that I, I actually have gone back to rewatch also. Um, it's the episode after Murder Under Glass. It's Make Me a Perfect Murder with the uh, television producer that murders her superior when she doesn't get promoted. Yep. Um, you guys have spoken a little bit here about sympathetic murderers, and, and she seems to be one, actually. Like, for, you know, while she may have chosen an extreme reaction to being wronged, she otherwise seems to be, if I'm recalling the episode all right, she um, otherwise seems to be decent people. And that just, I, I like the I liked her plan. I like the way that Columbo trots around this case, um, and especially I liked finding Lawrence Luckin. Yep. Whole other thing. <laughs> I was gonna say that's <laughs> it coming. A, it, took me a bit to, <laughs> it took me a bit to realize, um, but yeah, as I started delving into this a little I'm bit, back. yeah, that can't be the way. This the laughing Vulcan himself, no. Yep. And yet. There he is. Yep, Lawrence Luckin. Lawrence, Lawrence Luckinville and uh, yeah. Trish Trish Vandermeer, the lead in that, the uh, wife of George C. Scott, I believe. Oh yes, that's true. Yeah, there was I because I came across. I had to double check. I did a bit of research on this one because apparently there was a rumor that George C. Scott himself appears as a background extra in this episode that has since been debunked. So I was sadly oh. unable to share that. But that's when I found the Lawrence Luckinville thing. So I it, I broke even. It was okay. Um, yeah, that was one, and then um, it's one of the episodes after, um, I think still in the first season, after the, it's the, either the second or third episode of season one. So that would be um, Death Lends a Hand. Dead Weight? Yeah, it's the detective one, not the... Yeah, it's Death Lends a Hand. Not the Marine one, yeah, so it's the, sec- it's the second episode. Uh, yeah, that one, I admit, um, that one I think I accidentally slipped through a bit 
uh, through no fault of the episode, through just the fault of the hour and the fact that I had I had started late. But um, uh, yeah, no, picking up on all the little pieces and all the little quirks, and it, it's sort of what cemented also the realization that the three episodes you guys picked were an, an excellent, and one would expect no less from this fine collection of dorks, an excellent cross-section of Columbo greatness. That, yeah, the, from the first and second and, and third episode, you know, all are echoing the stuff that, that keeps the show running over, over, the, over the 70s. Well, Gabe, we really appreciate you taking a dive into it for us, giving it a chance, and, and so glad that you enjoyed it. Here, here. My pleasure. It certainly has been our pleasure to join our loyal listeners one more time. We hope you've enjoyed our, I don't want to say deep dive, but our, our little dive into the world of Lieutenant Columbo. Make sure, folks, that if you enjoyed what you heard, that you please rate, review, and subscribe our little podcast wherever you enjoy your podcast, be it on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and or Spotify. And please, of course, connect with us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you over there. We are on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. For Josh, Jordan, Gabe, and myself, I'm Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again on another edition of Dorkfest, the podcast. Well, sir, I want to thank you very much for your time. Anytime, Lieutenant. Right. Here. I don't want to forget my cigar. Oh, listen, just one more thing. Uh, I know you don't agree, but at least I've convinced my superiors that Jennifer Wells was murdered, was not a suicide, and they've officially assigned me to the case. That's my specialty, you know. Homicide.